Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The word of the Lord. All right, this morning we are continuing in Ephesians. We are in a section that we started last week, which is actually part of a four-part series. Last week we started with this idea of redeeming our resolutions, that every year we are confronted again with this need to change. It seems for some reason, whenever we change the calendar, um, we just have this uh, incurable disease. We just need to look at our lives and kind of see what needs to be changed and make resolutions. Even though last year those resolutions failed, we're doing it again, making resolutions this year. And so we're talking about... How do we uh, move into effective real life change? How, do, how, does, how does the Bible tell us we can change? What does the gospel speak into life change? How do we encounter, uh, work for it uh, um, effectively um, to have genuine, lasting, effective change in our lives? This week, we're going to be looking at um, the heart of that change, the, the critical piece. Um, and, and next week, we're going to be looking at how that plays out in very real life scenarios, we're going to be looking at practical things that we all face in our lives and how the, the implications of gospel change manifest itself in our everyday life. The week after that, we're going to be looking specifically at how that gospel change affects um, how we handle our sexuality. And, and that is a critical piece with our society um, because obviously we live in a, in a, in a very sexually aware, active, um, overindulgent society. Um, especially with the birth of the internet and the explosion of pornography um, over the, the last 15 years. Um, it has become an epidemic, and I'm not going to go through all the stats right now, nor am I going to talk about the, the, the implications for our society. Um, we'll get into that later. But I do want to let you know, I kind of put it on your radar. We're going to put information on the city, which is our online communication tool. Um, if you're not signed up for the city, you can go to the connection point, that U-shaped desk in the, in the lobby, and sign up for the city. It takes like 15 seconds, but that's how we communicate with our folks. We're going to be putting information out on there. We're actually going to have two forums coming up. They're going to be on Friday nights, and they're specifically going to be about how we move into gospel freedom in the area of pornography. And so we're going to have one forum for guys and one forum for gals. And, and um, you may be struggling with pornography. You maybe have struggled with pornography and, and are... Um, uh, still dealing with it. Maybe you're a guy that doesn't struggle with it, but here's the deal. I guarantee you're walking with somebody who does. And so this forum is for you. Okay. Um, you want to be there. Uh, ladies, we're going to be talking about women who are addicted to pornography, women who are addicted to, um, um, quasi pornography, romance novels and, and, um, uh, erotica, whatever. We're also going to be talking about women who are walking with men who are addicted to pornography. And so those two forums are coming up. The first forum is, I forget the date. We'll put it on the city, but it's a Friday night, and I think it's coming up in about three weeks, and I think the ladies' forum is coming up in about five. But put that on your radar. Coming up, um, not, not necessarily fun stuff to talk about, but absolutely necessary stuff to talk about. And so um, that's coming up. All right, this morning, we get to look at the heart of how we um, move into genuine change in our lives. All right, uh, I love the Internet. 
We all love the internet, right? We're, we're wired at home. We're wired on our phones. We have never had so much knowledge that is so easily accessible. And so it has changed our lives, right? You're working on your car. Man, you don't have to go buy a, a manual. You can just you know, do a search and you'll have a, a diagram. You're working on your home. You can find a video that shows you step-by-step step how to do whatever it is you're doing. One of my favorite applications of the internet is fixing me when I'm sick. Anybody do that? You ever get like sick and then look up your symptoms on the internet, right? Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you do. People do this all the time. It's actually hilarious um, because we like to diagnose ourselves, right? Um, we, go to, we go to WebMD and, and we type in, you know, abdominal pain, right? And we're like, oh my goodness, no, I've got diverticulitis. What the heck is that? What do I need to do, right? I'm, maybe I've got ectopic pregnancy. I don't know. I mean, it just hurts, right? And so pretty soon I'm, I'm like diagnosing myself. And, and as I'm diagnosing myself, I'm coming up with, with this plan of action. Because every time you have a problem, there's two things you have to do. You need to, you need to diagnose the problem. You need to come up with a plan of action to fix it, right? And, and, and what better than, than the internet? Because, of course, the internet knows everything, right? It never misleads you. Um, later, I find out that I just had gas, and, and it all, it's all good, right? But in the meantime, I have completely stressed myself out because I've diagnosed myself with every horrible disease possible, and, and I've given myself cures that were ineffective and maybe even made things worse. All right, that's the story of our lives. That's not just the story of how we deal with illness on the internet. That's the story of how we deal with change in life. We misdiagnose our problems and we continually give ourselves solutions that are not solutions. We come up with a diagnosis and then we come up with a prescription and it just doesn't work. We think our problem is an issue of self-discipline or emotional balance or better calendar management, management of, of our emotions. Maybe we think our problem is a lack of knowledge. So we go out learning the things we need to learn, um, uh, getting a, a greater degree or, or more success or uh, a new or better relationship. Or here's the deal. We, we, we come up with solutions for our diagnosis of the problem. And our solutions tend to be pretty predictable, especially around the new year. <laughs> we're going to lose some weight. Uh, we're going to stop spending so much money. Um, we're going to spend more time with people that we love or we're supposed to love. Um, we are going to um, make ourselves more positive, more pleasant, more wonderful people. I mean, that's just what we go about doing, right? And we're going to do that through all kinds of, of solutions, right? We set goals. We reward ourselves for success. We punish ourselves when we fail. We, we give ourselves um, positive things to think about, right? That's real popular today in, in the self-therapeutic world is, is giving yourself mantras, um, th this idea that if I can just change the way, and here's, here's a little bit of truth in here, um, a lot of truth actually, but misled of it. But the idea is if I can just tell myself enough positive things, I'll start looking at the world in a new positive way. And when I think about, look at the world through a new positive way, um, my experience of the world is going to be more positive, more wonderful, right? So I start telling myself, right? You can actually buy CDs. You can just stick in your car while you're driving along and you're supposed to sing along things like, I am a wonderful person. Person. I am happy and friendly, right? It's like, like you're just going, I'm not even kidding. Like you're just driving along singing this stuff because the idea is that the more you tell yourself this stuff, the more real it's going to become, the more true. So you've diagnosed your problem and you've come up with a solution um, based on that diagnosis. The problem is we never get the diagnosis right. So our solutions never work. 
Your problem isn't that you're overweight. Your problem isn't that you're underweight. Your problem isn't that you're not self-disciplined. Your problem isn't that you're overindulgent. Your problem isn't that you like to spend money or save money. Your problem isn't that you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or that your husband isn't attractive, right? It's, you know what your problem is? Last week we looked at this. Paul says that the root problem, that is the root of every other problem in our lives, in verse 18, he said that we are alienated from the life of God. All humans are born alienated from the life of God. We were created to live in the life of God. It's the sun that we were meant to grow in. It's the foundation that we were supposed to find our security in. It's, it's the, the, the strength that we were supposed to move in. And because um, we're born alienated and rebels, Cosmic traitors to God. We're born sinners and then we sin, right? I mean, this is, we, we um, uh, seek to dethrone God and put ourselves in the center of, of the universe. We seek to claim God's glory and all the blessings of his life without the weight of, of relationship, right? We want all the goodness from God without any of the obligations of having a God. Our biggest problem is that we are alienated from the life of God. And because of that, we are driven in all of our behavior to continually try to fill that gap. That deep, deep need for the life of God. That's the air we were created to breathe. And since we can't breathe that air, we're continually looking for everything else. That is the, the one thing that was supposed to feed us and make us full. And since we don't have it, we're continually trying to feed it everything that doesn't work. Right? We have appetites that, that can never be satiated. Why? Because we're eating the wrong thing. We're, we're misdiagnosing the problem and coming up with the wrong solutions. Thankfully, God has diagnosed our solution, or diagnosed our problem. God has identified that, that and, and shared with us, because it's not something we would have intuitively discovered on our own. God has graciously said, hey, your problem is that you sin. Your problem is that as a result of your rebellion against me, you have been alienated from me, the source of life, the sun, the center of the universe. You were designed to live in my glory and the overflow of my goodness, in, in the outflow of my joy. You were supposed to live for my glory and out of that experience your joy. The problem is now you live for your glory and you're constantly seeking your joy. I diagnose your problem. Thankfully, God has also given us a solution. And that solution is called the gospel. The good news of what God has done to solve a problem we couldn't solve. That God has sent a Savior. That he didn't separate himself from our suffering. He didn't separate himself from our sin, but instead so fully identified himself with us that he became one of us. And as one of us, became our substitute. Living the life that we should have but didn't live. Dying the death we deserve to die. As our substitute in our place, paying a price we could never pay. Satisfying God in regard to our sin. And rising again, proving that the God of the universe, the righteous judge, was satisfied in regard to the judgment of sin. Because our substitute, Paid the price. He died our death. That's God's solution to our root problem. And because of that, God wants to change um, through redemption and restoration. Not primarily what we do, but primarily who we are. We like to change the things that we do. When we're Diagnosing problems, we're almost always looking at the fruit of our lives. And I like that one, but I don't like that one. And so we're trying to keep one and pluck the other. God's not really that concerned about what we do, you guys. But he's absolutely concerned about who we are. 
You know why? Because who you are determines what you do. You will act out of your identity. And maybe you're doing all the wrong things, but if you're not who God says you're supposed to be, it doesn't matter how moral, how many rules you keep. You're doing it for the wrong reasons, I guarantee it. God wants to change who we are, and then out of that, that will ultimately change what we do, right? And if we're going to move into that, it means that we need to believe the gospel. It begins by believing the gospel and, and, and ultimately recognizing that, that as a believer in Jesus, I'm no longer who I used to be. There's a fundamental change that occurs when I believe the gospel, and, and, and that change is, is radical, real, and lasting. In fact, it's what Paul calls, he calls that old self, the old, old man or the old self, in verse 22. Take a look at verse 22. He's been talking in this section about um, how we used to live our lives and how we used to try and solve our own problems and how we were enslaved, honestly, to our desires and to um, uh, the darkness that, that, you know, just our lack of understanding. Verse 20 says, but that's no longer, that's not the way you learned Christ. That's not the gospel. Assuming that you've heard him, and we're taught about him, assuming you believe the gospel, as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Um, he identifies this, this phrase. He says that we are to put off our old self. Literally, the word is man, and it's a generic word for humanity. There was a, a, a way in which you were identified with a broken and lost humanity before you became a believer. That's, that's who you were. You were part of that family. But that's not longer, longer who you are. That is the old man, the old self. It's who you were before you believed the gospel. Right Earlier, when, when Paul said in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Right? What he's, he's not saying, identify all the evildoers out there and then don't behave like them. He's not saying go find everybody who's a, an enemy and, and, and then, you know, make sure you just behave opposite of them. What he's saying is, is <laughs> Gen, the Ephesians were Gentiles. Gentile is a word that means nations or non-Jewish people. The Ephesians were Gentiles. What he's saying is before you came to faith, you were not part of the family of God. Now that you're a believer, you are part of the family of God. No longer walk as an outsider. No longer walk as if you weren't part of the family of God. Don't walk as if this isn't true. Don't walk like through life as, as an unbeliever, right? And that's what he's saying here. Put off the old self. That person that you were before you came to faith in Christ, put it off. It's like changing your clothes. That's, that's the, the language that's used here. You're supposed to take that old identity and take it off. Put it off like you're, you're not wearing it anymore. Um, I like to occasionally work from my home. Um, I have an office here, but there are times that... Um, um, I will work from home, and I, my kitchen table is my office. Um, and and when the kids get home, you know, I'll put the headphones on, and, and I just kind of get isolated that way, but occasionally I don't. And uh, and so I get to watch a lot of interesting TV in the afternoon because my kids will come in and flip on TV and watch things that um, I wouldn't normally turn on. One of those shows is a show called What Not to Wear. Um, if any of you have ever heard of this or seen it, um, it's fascinating. Um, it's actually kind of fun to watch. Um, the hosts, Stacy and Clinton, are these super fashion conscious people. And what they do is, is it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. They have people 
nominate their friends to get an entire new wardrobe. The only criteria is that they have to be really bad dressers, right? They have to just like, it has to be some dude that's like in his late 20s and is a professional, but he's still dressing like he's 15. You know what I'm saying? And, and, or it's a, a gal that used to be super athletic and, and maybe still is. And, you know, like in college, she was doing all this athletic stuff, but now she's a professional, but she hasn't upgraded her wardrobe. She's still just wearing sweats to the office and all this sort of stuff. And what they do is they come in and they film the person for like two weeks secretly. Right. And they get all this footage of how nasty you look when you go to Walmart and, and what you wear when you're going out to get coffee. Right. And then they show up. Right. There's this big party and it's all staged. Everybody's in on it. But you and you show up and and right in the middle of it, um, Clinton and Stacy walk out and they're like, you've been nominated for what not to wear. And you're like. Should I be honored? I think I'm insulted. Right? And they're like, let's make it worse. We're actually going to show you the secret footage that we've taken. So they show you all the secret footage of how nasty you look, right? In the way that you dress. And then, what they, then they go, all right, do you want in? What we're going to do is we're going to give you $5,000 to get an entire new wardrobe. The only requirement is that you throw away everything that you currently own. You got to throw it all away. Put it all in the trash. Put it all in the trash. And then we will teach you how to dress. We will teach you how to dress your body type and how to do your colors and how to do your patterns. And, and that's where it all gets kind of weird. But um, basically what, what, what he's saying is, is you know, we're going to – what's interesting about this is that it's so hard for people to throw away their old clothes. You know why? Because our clothes are connected to our identity. We dress the way we dress because we see ourselves in a very specific way. We put on clothes that represent the way we see ourselves. And one of the challenges on this show, it's really interesting, is that they have to teach people to see themselves in any way. Sometimes they're successful. Sometimes they're horribly not. It's usually entertaining either way. But here's the deal. Um, It's very similar to that with this passage. When he says, put off your old self, he's talking about putting away an identity, a way of seeing yourself, a way of understanding yourself a way of of defining yourself. How do you define yourself? Maybe it's your experiences, your family. Uh, Maybe it's a a, a special skill set you've had. Maybe it's a special wound that you've suffered. We all have ways from our past of defining ourselves. And some of those things we honestly love. And some of those things we honestly hate. Now, most of us, when it comes to putting off the old self, we're like, yeah, I, I absolutely hate this part of myself. So yeah, I'd like to change my shoes. Right? And maybe my belt and, and occasionally my jacket. But I want to keep this and this. Right? Just like they do on the show. It's hilarious. Um, but what he's talking about is a wholesale change in identity. Putting away who you used to be, the way you defined yourself, the way you looked at yourself, the things that you used to look to to define yourself as strong or beautiful or worthwhile, th- those are gone. Not that the, the traits themselves are gone, but the weight that you put on them is gone. That's not how you value. That, that's, that's who you used to be. And I'm going to tell you something, you guys. This is not going to be easy. In fact, this is going to be the single greatest challenge of the Christian life. You know why? Because you're not just putting away clothes. Right? right? When you throw away a sweatshirt, it doesn't crawl out of the trash can and get back into your closet. But your old self will. When you try to put away who you were before you came to know Christ, it's not going to go away quietly. It's active and forceful in your life. In fact, take a look at at specifically what he says there in verse 22. He says, put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life. In other words, that's who you were before you came to know Jesus, before you believed. Why? Because it's, it's corrupt through deceitful, what? Desires. Are desires passive? No way. Desires are incredibly active. And not only is the old self driven by desire, it's driven by deceitful desires. So what it does is it comes along and it whispers in your ear, what you really want is. What you really need to be satisfied is. If you could just have, then you would be. The old nature, the old self, is not quiet, and it doesn't go away on its own. It's the identity you were born with, and it is a sinful force in your life. Why? Why is it sinful? Because it's continually trying to draw you to a different solution than the one God has given you. It's going to continually lead you to try to find satisfaction in things that don't satisfy, because it will not ever turn you to the life of God. It will continually turn you to substitutes for the life of God. And it will deceive you. It will entice you. It will trick you. This is the thing you need if you just had this, right? It's like when you eat a a hot fudge sundae because you've had a bad day. Did that fix your day? I mean, it tasted good, right? But, I mean, it tastes good. And I'm not saying that pleasure doesn't do some good, but it doesn't fix your day. That's why you have to eat a second one, right? That's why you got to go from there to the to the to the candy bar you had hidden up in the cupboard, right? That's why you continue to eat when you're not hungry. Weird. Why are you shoving stuff down your your, you know why? Well, you're not even hungry. It's because your sinful nature will actually try to enslave you to appetites that never satisfy. That's why you can never get enough success. That's why you can never get enough food. That's why you can never get enough affirmation. That's why you can never get enough of the things that you're trying to consume to meet your need for the life of God. It is a deceitful, desirous force in our lives. And that's why it's not going to be easy. Paul described it like this in in Galatians 5.17. He says this, for the desires of the flesh. Now, let's pause there. Paul uses a word, flesh, that is synonymous with the old self. Um, He's not talking about your physical body. He's not in any way saying the physical body is evil. That's an unbiblical idea. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, um, and they walked in the garden before the fall, physical, naked, awesome, right? Uh, And there was nothing wrong with their bodies, and there was nothing wrong with their relationship, right? It was all wonderful and all satisfying, okay? Okay. The body is, is not itself evil, but there is what he identifies a force in the flesh. So he's not talking about the physical body, but a force within it that is synonymous with our old nature, the old man, who we used to be before we came to Christ that continues to have these, these evil self-centered desires. The desires of the flesh are set against those of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, the one who came to indwell you when you believed in Jesus. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. In the Greek, this is very graphic language. The language used here is actually that of trench warfare. The flesh is entrenched against the spirit, and the spirit is entrenched against the flesh. Christian, listen to me. Following Christ is not going to be easy. 
procuring genuine life change is not going to be easy. It's a battle. And if anyone tells you differently, they're lying to you. The, the flesh is, is, is desiring and set against in warfare against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Now, now, Paul goes on in Galatians 5 to say that if you walk in the spirit, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. The flesh is powerless in the face of the power of the spirit. He's talking about the same thing that we're going to talk about in our passage. At the end of that verse, though, I want to highlight this phrase. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, desires of the spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing even the things that you want to do. You can't just do what you want to do. <laughs> what that means is that your desires will mislead you. He's not saying, well, you can't do what you want to do because you'll get slapped. God is, you know, the, the school marm that's got the long ruler. And every time you reach for something that looks a little bit pleasurable, he's going to smack your hand. What he's saying is you can't trust your desires. You will want things and they will feel right and they will be wrong. Just because something feels right doesn't make it right. I can't tell you how many people I've sat across the table from and they have ruined their lives because their justification for doing whatever they chose to do was it just felt right. And I, I desperately plead with people. I'm sitting across the table and they're making choices and I'm like, that is not what the word of God says. That is not wisdom. And they're like, you just don't get it. I feel like God wants me to do this because it just feels right. And I don't think God would mislead me. You can't trust your feelings. You can't just follow your desires. There will be times emotionally, um, psychologically, when you're needing something, you will desperately feel like you need something and it's the last thing you actually need. Why? Because your flesh is deceptively trying to enslave you. Or follower of Christ, listen to me. This, <laughs> this is going to be a battle. And it's a battle waged for your desires. It's a it's a, it's a battle waged for where you will find joy. Will you find joy in following your own path, in self-indulgence, in, in, in ultimately making yourself the center? Or are you going to find joy in the one who is the true center? The old self is determined to find joy apart from God, to make itself the center of the universe, to rob God of his glory while trying to steal all of his blessings. So how do we take this old self off? How do we, how do we separate ourselves from, from who we used to be outside of Christ? Right? Because we've already mentioned, you can't just take it off. You can't just throw it in the trash and walk away. I mean, we wish that would happen. <laughs> I mean, more than once, I have, I have desperately wished I could just take it off and be done with it, right? But that's not the way it works. If we're going to do this, we have to engage the battle. And if we're going to engage the battle, we need to engage the battle in the right way. The only way to take off the old man is to put on the new man. The only way to take off the old man is to put on the new man. Take a look at verse 24. In verse 24, Paul tells us about the new man. He says, put on the new self, the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Um, if you've believed in Jesus... You've been made new. You've been given a new identity. You've been given a new name. You want to put it that way, right? One time I was led, and it was um, through through something we used to call, we do call redemption groups, and it was awesome. We, but in that, I, I had to explore this idea of, of names, and and 
for me, it was this, it was powerful as I thought about it, man. I, I used to be Steve, son of shame. That's how I grew up. That's how I identified myself. A lot of hiding, a lot to prove, a lot of posturing. Steve, son of shame. That's no longer who I am. I've been given a new name. Steve, son of God. And that was a powerful way for me to look at this idea that I'm not who I used to be. I'm, I'm a new man. You have been, Christ follower, listen to me, you've been given a new name. You've been given a new identity. You are not defined by who you were, what you've done, or what's been done to you. You are defined by what he has done for you in the person of Christ. You've been given a new identity. In fact, that's why Paul says that this new man has been created. Interesting phrase. The new man wasn't just like named. It was actually created. It's a new self, a new identity, a new creation. One of the ways that, that the Bible talks about this is the phrase being born again. Uh, it's a phrase that I, I cringe at, honestly. I use very seldom in public because um, it has been um, kind of ripped out of its biblical context and, and redefined. Um, I was a principal at a Christian school for a number of years. And while I was there, I remember one time giving a tour to a family, and it was a delightful family. It was, uh, uh, they were highly educated, urbanites, um, recent converts to the faith. Um, and as we're walking through, they're, they're listening to me talk about the teachers and the curriculum and, and, and the building and all the rest of it. We get to the end, and the lady looks at me, and she's like, well, Mr. Mizell, that's, that's all wonderful. They used to call me that, Mr. Mizell. Um, that's all wonderful. But just how born again are you guys? Weird question. But I knew exactly what they meant because the term born again has become so associated with very specific political and social agendas. To be a born again Christian means that you hold very specific positions publicly that define you as being different from all of those others, right? The, the liberals or whatever you want to call them. Um, that's not what the word means. It has nothing to do with your political affiliation or your social position or how progressive or regressive or traditional or conservative. It has nothing to do with any of that. The word has to do with a genuine spiritual condition that occurs when you believe the gospel. In fact, the phrase comes from Jesus himself in John chapter 3 when he's talking to a, a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him at night. He was a leader of the Jews. And he came under the cover of darkness because he had questions for Jesus. and It was dangerous for a leader to be associated with Jesus at this point. And Jesus is very blunt with him. He's like, look, man, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? I'm going to tell you how. You have to be born again. Now, what's interesting is that Nicodemus was shocked by the phrase, as we should be. It's a really weird phrase. Nicodemus, you look it up. What he literally says is, what are you talking about? Do I like have to crawl back up into the privates of my mother and come out again? I mean, literally, he's like, he's shocked. And Jesus is like, no, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying you have to be born both of the water and of the spirit. What he means by that is you have to be born both physically and then you have to be born again spiritually because you were born separated, alienated from the life of God. You were born dead, separated from God. You must be born again. You need to be recreated in a way that connects you with the life of God born from the Spirit. In a way that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is shining his light on you, giving you the foundation of love, speaking into your identity, connecting with you, meeting your deepest needs. You need to be recreated, born 
again. And that's what Paul's talking about here when he says that you are a a new self created. It's a a sovereign, um, creative miracle of God. I mean, if you think about it, can you bear it? You know, you can't bear yourself, right? Anybody? No. I mean, somebody else has to do all the labor. You know what I'm saying? Like, you have to thank your mom that you were born. You didn't do anything, right? You sucked the life out of her nine, nine, nine months, right? And then you put her in a lot of pain, right? And she did all the work and you got all the benefit. Well, guess what? That's the same way it works with your new birth. God does all the work. You get all the benefit. You believe the gospel because he did the work for you and you are recreated and recreated in a way that you could never create yourself. Look at the end of that verse. You are to put on the new self that is created after the likeness of God. We all know that we're born with specific family traits, right? Like some of you wish that you had gotten your mom's nose instead of your dad's, right? That you had gotten your dad's eyelashes, like they're fuller, right? Some of you wish that you had gotten a, a, you know what I'm saying? Like you've seen pictures of your, man, I wish I could be like my grandma. You know what I'm saying? Like, We all have family traits that originate from our original birth. We get family traits from our new birth as well. We are born, created in the likeness of God, which is exactly what we were supposed to be. Remember, Adam and Eve were created in the likeness of God. They were image bearers of God, stewards of all creation, meant to image God to all of creation for God's glory and their joy. When we are recreated, we are given a new self, we're born into a new family with new, new character traits. In fact, look at the end of the verse. He says, you're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Believer, listen to me. When God looks at you, what does he see? Does he see Steve, the son of shame? Steve, who failed last night? Steve, who succeeded a little bit this week, but failed a whole lot more? No, he sees Steve, the son of God, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know why? Because when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he sees perfection. He sees true righteousness and holiness. Do you know what that means? While you're sitting here trying to change this behavior and that behavior, do you realize you're already truly righteous? You are already holy. You are already set apart for God's glory in God's glory. You've already been created, born into a new family that gives you a new identity that is defined by completely different things than you are currently defining yourself by. You've been given a new identity. And it's a done deal because the moment you're born again, the moment you believe the gospel, you're given this new identity. Notice it doesn't say you might be created. You could be created. You're being created. It's not conditional and it's not progressive. It's absolute. The moment you believe the gospel, this identity is yours. It's given to you as a gift in the same way that your physical birth was given to you as a gift. Now, I want to I want to make a few highlights here, just some points, that I because I know that there are some, some areas of confusion, but I want to address them. One, we're not talking about primarily an emotional experience. Being born again has nothing to do with your emotions. Nothing. Now, you may feel emotions. You may feel thankful. You may feel overjoyed the moment you believe the gospel. When I believe the gospel, it was the middle of the night. I was reading my Bible in a dorm room. Nobody else was awake. awake. I was was filled with joy. I was dancing up and down the halls quietly because I didn't want to be seen as weird. But I mean, I was just like energetic and I was like, oh my goodness. I mean, it just, I was done running. 
You know what I'm saying? Like done running, done defining myself, done. Like I, I finally got it. Jesus was my substitute. I was given a new identity. I was forgiven. I mean, it was just overwhelmingly good news, but I wasn't born again because I felt like that. I felt like that because I was born again. Some of you pursue emotional experience to try and validate your faith. You're not saved by the emotional experience. You're, you're saved by the faith, right? Nor are you saved by an act of the will, right? Some churches teach you to pursue emotional experiences. Some, on the other hand, teach you to try and make some sort of commitment, right? Walk an aisle, say a prayer, commit your life to Christ, um, uh, you know? And, and when you do that, when, when I'm submissive enough or good enough, or you're not saved by committing your will to God. You're saved by believing the gospel. Fundamentally different things, right? Committing your life to Christ is something you do. <laughs> believing the gospel is not something you do. It's a response to truth. It's you're presented a message of good news of what God has done for you, and you trust in the Savior, not in your ability to take hold of the Savior, but in the Savior's ability to take hold of you. It's a response of trust and faith and belief. The moment you believe the gospel, the moment you trust that, that God has done what he said he's done by giving a substitute by which you can be forgiven, you are born again. You are made new. You're given a new name. You've been given a new identity. And the only way to start this new life is by faith. It's the only way. You have to believe the message. The message of the gospel comes and confronts you and says, you have a problem. God diagnoses it. You're a sinner. God has a solution. He has a Savior. And when you come to believe in the Savior, you are made new. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Any progress you make in the Christian life is made in the same way that you start it. You have to continue believing the gospel. You believe the gospel to be born again. You believe the gospel to be saved. You must continue to believe the gospel to enter into any kind of life change that is true and lasting. And that's where we get to this verse that's between. Paul said, put off the old man, put on the new man. Put off the old self, put on the new self. How do you do that? If you look at uh, verse 23, it says the way to do that is ultimately to be renewed in the spirits of your minds. Now here is a central challenge for us. We are by nature doers. And so we try to turn everything into a task that can be accomplished. I, for years, I would read a passage like this that said, put off the old man, put on the new. And I would walk away going, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I will conquer this. I will, you ever done that? How'd that work out for you? Right? It's like, no, I'm, that's my new year's resolution. I'm going to put off the old man. I'm going to put on the new man. So I'm, I got my Bible reading plan. I got my prayer plan. I got my spiritual discipline plan. I even, I'm even going to do silence. I hate silence. I will do silence. I will sit for this amount of time and not even turn on the radio. I mean, I'll just sit there and, you know, honestly, a lot of people think that's actually how you grow. Some people are actually taught like, like counseling techniques, spiritual discipline, discipleship techniques that, that, they turn this into a moralistic challenge. What they say is, hey, your job is to put off the old man and put on the new. You better go do it, right? Let's identify areas in your life where you're not putting on the new man. And what they mean by that is let's find all the sins in your life. Oh, you're sleeping with your girlfriend. Nah, that's not good. I'll show you a verse. In fact, I'll show you a verse from the Bible that tells you that's wrong. Now you go stop doing it, right? 
And, and if you don't stop doing it and you come back and you're like, man, I'm really struggling. I, I don't know. Like maybe even you stopped, but you, your, your brain is going crazy with lust and all the rest of it. And you're like, how do I get hold of this? And they're like, well, it says right here, you're just supposed to stop. So you better just go stop. And I'll show you another verse on, on you need to repent. Now, you're not repenting, so you better repent. And once you've repented, you better go fix it. Do you see how this is, in fact, the same exact thing we've been talking about that is wrong? It is your self-improvement plan. It's like God has given you like this new kind of law, and now it's your job to go out and somehow perform and obey it and do it as if it were in your own strength. It is futility. It is, it is idiocy. The whole point of the gospel is that God has done for you what you can't do for yourself. God is not sitting around waiting for you to get your act together. He's already gotten it together. What he's saying is, is trust me. And when you trust me, I will deliver you into a new kind of life, a new identity that will change what you do. My, my concern is not what you're doing. My concern is, is, is you don't know who you are. When I deliver you into the freedom of your new identity, you will also be freed from the behaviors that are enslaving you. And the only way that can genuinely happen is through the progressive renewal of the spirit of our minds. That's where the battle takes place, you guys. Not in the behavior, but in the mind. Not in discrete behaviors, but in our ability to move forward in our new identity. Right? The old man is trying to deceive us with deceitful desires. It is trying to change the, 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 the focus of our joy. Right? You need this to finally find joy. Food, sex, relationship. You, know, you need this person. And not just that person, but you need that person more and more. Like some of you, you know what I'm talking about. You'll, you'll end up suffocating someone you love because you just want more and more and more and more affirmation from them. And they can never give you enough because they can never feed you as deeply as God's love can feed you. You'll end up destroying the very thing you love, trying to put God weight on it, right? The old man will continually try to enslave you to that pattern. But your new identity, your new self is free. It's free from that. We are new creations in Christ. And what we need to get good at, you guys, is preaching the gospel to ourselves. We need to get good at recentering ourselves on the truth of the gospel. It's the same truth that we believed to become Christians, to be born again. We need to continue believing it to walk in this new life. We need to renew our minds. And the way we renew our minds is by bringing in truth to expose the lies, right? I mean, a lie is all about darkness. It's all about deception, right? But you turn on a light and all the deception's gone, right? You ever notice that it doesn't matter how oppressive, how dark the darkness is, it just simply takes a single match. The smallest light is powerful to, to, to dispel the greatest darkness. And here we have the greatest light ever. The light of the gospel, the light of God's truth about who he is, what he's done, and who you are. And what he's saying is you need to renew your mind in the truth. And as you do, it will expose the lies. And they will have less and less hold on you. Because you will see them for the deceptive traps that they are. We need to center ourselves in the gospel. All right, two applications from this. The first is this. If you're not a believer, you need to believe. There's one command to you in all of Scripture if you're not a believer. <laughs> Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's an invitation and a command. Um, 
you know, some of you, and this is, I want to be sensitive with this because I know that there are some people that have a lot of questions and a lot of processing. And I understand that because I went through a long season of struggle and fighting and intellectual questions and all the rest of that before I came to faith. And I want to honor your process. But I also want you to hear the clear, compelling command and invitation of Scripture to believe in Jesus Christ. God has shown you his hand. He doesn't keep anything hidden. His agenda is simple. He wants to redeem you and restore you. And in order to do that, he has sent his son. He has paid the highest price. He has made the greatest sacrifice. He has identified himself so fully with you that he suffered your pain. He took your penalty. He died in your place that you might be forgiven. And when he rose again to new life, that wasn't just for him. It was for you. So hear the invitation clearly. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be born again. You'll be given a new name, a new identity, a new freedom, something that you could never imagine. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second application is for those of you who are believers. And that very simply is, is you need to get good at keeping on believing. You need to keep preaching the gospel to your heart and keep believing the gospel. You need to find ways every single day to renew your understanding of who you are in Christ. Every single day telling yourself the truth so that you're not being deceived and enslaved by the lies. You need to find ways to continually turn on the light, renew your mind in the truth of the gospel so that you're not being deceived and enslaved. We need to remind ourselves daily. Now, there's a lot of ways that that we can do this. And and honestly, very simply, the heart of it is this. you got to look at Jesus. When when, When we see Jesus on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, if we can see that and not be moved, we know we're not really seeing it anymore. Not for what it really is. We've made a caricature of it. Right? I mean, we're looking at the greatest display of self-sacrificial love the world has ever known. It should move our hearts. It should break our hearts. The grace of God should undo us and redo us. Right? So we need it. But the problem is that, that our hearts grow cold, that our sight grows dim. We get so used to just doing religious things instead of our hearts being engaged with the God of those religious things. And so I'm going to give you a simple prayer. This comes from a book um, written by J.D. Greer called The Gospel. Um, this book, I read this last year, and um, I don't highlight a lot of books up here a lot. This book I read last year, I read a lot of what I just kind of generally term pop theology. Some of it's really good. Some of it's just rehashing some other stuff. This book came out in 2011. It took me quite a while to get to it because I just I wasn't, you know, wasn't that motivated. And I, This is probably the best book I read last year. I mean, it just was incredibly encouraging. Um, it spoke to me, and, and it definitely um, impacted my walk with Christ. I'm going to recommend it to you. At the heart of this book is a very simple prayer, and that's what he impacts through this whole book is a four-part prayer, and that prayer is meant to be prayed every single day, okay? And, and as we pray this prayer, its design is to recenter us in the gospel, to renew our minds. We are asking God to keep our vision clear, right? Look at the prayer. It's on the, on the screen. First of all, he says, in Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you, God, love me more. And there's nothing I have done that makes you love me less. I mean, just think about the radical implication 
of that gospel truth. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. God will not love you more if you get up at 6 a.m. and pray. God will not love you more if you're more disciplined with your Bible reading. He will not love you more if you give away your money. He will not love you more if you do anything. Why? Because his love for you is not based on what you do, but on what he has done. You can't do anything to make him love you more. He loves you infinitely. Nor anything you've done can it make him love you less. Why? Because his love isn't based on your performance. It's based on Christ's. It is completely unconditional. It is grace. And it's free. And what this does is it frees you. As you pray this, you guys, listen to me. You're going to be freed from pursuing all those things that, that make you feel worthwhile. I have to get straight A's. You, I mean, you're like driven. And when you get a B, you say, well, you know what? Ten years from nobody cares if there's a stinking B on your transcript. But you're like crushed. You know why? Because it, it, it like you've let yourself down. Whatever it is that you're looking to right there to make you feel worthwhile. You know what I'm saying? You're building your own kingdom. You're building your own identity. As you pray this, you're freed from that. It doesn't mean that you don't want to perform, but now you want to perform for a totally different reason. You want to perform to honor the God who gave you the gifts, not to use the gifts to become God. You will be anchored in the love of God. Look at the second one. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. That's a hard one. You know why? Because our flesh is continually setting its desire on everything but God and telling you you have to have it. You need to have that car. You need to have those clothes. You need to have that approval. You need to have that success. You need to have that degree. You need to have that person. You need to, I, you're looking to everything but God to give you what only God can give. Your presence. Because you're the sun. You're the, you're the source of life. Your presence is the overflow of joy and goodness. Your approval. Because when you look at me, you see Christ. I stand in a position of approval are all I need for everlasting joy. Some of you, you guys, this will deliver you from the roller coaster of your emotions. Some of you, like, you feel good on one day. And on that day, man, you feel like God's close to you and you feel like everything's wonderful. And then the next day you feel horrible. Like for some reason, something goes wrong in the morning. It could just be that when you got up, like your favorite food wasn't in the cafeteria or, or, or some, you know, something broke in the kitchen and you know you're going to have to fix it or whatever. But it sets your emotions going in totally the wrong way. And for the rest of the day, you feel like God's so distant and you feel like, you know what I'm saying? The problem with that is that your emotions are at the front of the train. Your emotions need to be the caboose, not the driver. The driver needs to be truth, and your emotions will follow. You're having a bad day? <laughs> your presence and approval are all I need for lasting joy. And that's what I have. The God of the universe looks at me and says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Your presence is here to bless, even though it feels so foreign and distant to me. Your approval rests on me, even though I don't even approve of myself right now. And what you're going to find is that the truth will drive you and free you from, from the enslavement of your emotions. Number three, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. Radically changes the way we interact with people around us. Now you're no longer kind to make yourself feel like a good person. Now you no longer do the good things because you feel obligated to do them. You do them because God was kind to you. You're so overwhelmed by the generosity of God that you become generous with others because you know the generosity of God has no limits. You become kind with people who are annoying because God has been kind with you. 
It's no longer your work to try and make yourself feel good about yourself or to earn some sort of favor with God or, or to get some. It is a response to what God has done for you. That's the key, by the way, and that's a whole other sermon. It's the key to forgiveness. To truly, genuinely forgive somebody. The only way to do it is, is to, to find incredible freedom in the fact that you've been forgiven. That your greatest debt has been paid and that so overwhelms and fills your heart with gratitude and joy that you become generous even with those who have robbed you, stolen from you, hurt you, taken from you. Number four, as I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. So often in life, um, we come to doubt the goodness of God because things don't seem to be going the way we want them to be. You guys, life is hard and it's filled with brokenness because we're in a fallen world that is enslaved to sin. And during this period of time, life is going to be difficult. But that doesn't change the heart of God. Measure the compassion of God by the cross. What does the cross tell you? The cross tells you that God loved you so much that he was willing to send his son to die for you. At your worst, he gave you his best. Measure his compassion by the cross and measure his power by his resurrection. This is the God who can bring life out of death. This is the God who can call something into existence that didn't previously exist. This is the God of the universe. Measure his compassion by the cross and his power by the resurrection. This simple four-part prayer, I'm telling you, man, it is going to change the way you approach your life. Not because the prayer is powerful, you guys. This isn't like some secret prayer that, because it refocuses our, uh, on truth. It's Jesus that changes us. It's Jesus that sets us free. It's Jesus that gives us our new identity and sets us free in that new identity. Our job is to put off the old man and put on the new, which means we need to get good at preaching the gospel to ourselves, to bringing in truth, to renew our minds, that we might walk in the freedom that, that Jesus paid for, that we might have. Next week, we're going to be looking at very specific, practical areas of our life where we struggle to put this into practice. Um, we'll unpack that then. For now, we're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions on the screen and ask you to um, pray and, and let God speak to you in that. We're also going to take our offering. Um, we take our offering every week. Huh? We see it as a response, honestly, because we give because we've been given to. And so it's a, an opportunity for um, us as the people of God to partner together to fund the work of ministry so that the gospel might advance in this local community through this local church. It's an opportunity and, and it's a blessing. It's a form of worship. Um, we would like you um, to give us the worship response card that's in your bulletin. We'd love it if you fill that out. Let us know if you have a prayer request. If you're a new visitor, we'd love to give you a gift. We're not going to get all weird. We just want to give you a gift and see if you have any questions and connect with you. Um, but drop that in the basket when it comes around. We're also going to have people available at the back to pray with you. For some of you, you know, you've got areas where you're, you're, you're hearing the message and you're having a really hard time seeing hope. You're hearing the truth, but you're having a hard time seeing it as true. Um, prayer is a powerful way to ask God to show you, to feel the truth, to preach the gospel to yourself. That's what those folks are back there to do, to pray with you. Now, I know it takes an act of humility to do that, to go and say, hey, I want someone to pray with me. Um, but remember, God gives grace to the humble, and he resists the proud. Be humble. Ask for prayer. Um, we're here to pray with you, and we'd love to pray with you and for you. So put it on the response card. Meet us in person. We'd love to pray for you back there. Right now, I'm going to pray for us. We'll go into our time of, of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father, we thank you that you are, um, oh my goodness, that you are who you are.
that you're a God of redemption and restoration, that you didn't shake your head at us when we rebelled against you, that you didn't give us up as a lost cause, that you didn't walk away and just consider it a, a lost deal. You love us. You identify with us. You do for us what we can't do for ourselves, like a loving father would for his own child. You pay the price so that we might get the benefit. You give us a new name. Speak to my friends. Renew my hope. We've been given so much. Set us free in generosity and in joy.